We turn in the Holy Scriptures to Esther chapter 9. Tonight we will look at the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 19. That portion will be our reading and also our text. So let us read the word of God together, beginning at Esther 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's commandment and his decree drew near to be put in execution, in the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, though it was turned to the contrary, that the Jews had rule over them that hated them, the Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus to lay hand on such as sought their hurt, and no man could withstand them. For the fear of all, for the fear of them fell upon all people. And all the rulers of the provinces and the lieutenants and the deputies and officers of the king helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame went out throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai waxed greater and greater. Thus the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, and slaughter and destruction, and did what they would unto those that hated them. And in Shushan, the palace, the Jews slew and destroyed five hundred men, and Parshandatha, and Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Arasai, and Eridai, and Vajasatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, slew they. But on the spoil laid they not their hand. On that day, the number of those that were slain in Shushan the palace was brought before the king. And the king said unto Esther the queen, The Jews have slain and destroyed five hundred men in Shushan the palace, and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. Or what is thy request further? And it shall be done. Then said Esther, If it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan to do tomorrow also according unto this day's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged upon the gallows. And the king commanded it so to be done. And the decree was given at Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. For the Jews that were in Shushan gathered themselves together on the fourteenth day also of the month Adar, and slew three hundred men at Shushan, but on the prey they laid not their hand. But the other Jews that were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together and stood for their lives, and had rest from their enemies, and slew of their foes seventy and five thousand, but they laid not their hands on the prey. On the thirteenth day of the month Adar, and on the fourteenth day of the same, rested they, and made it a day of feasting and gladness. 
But the Jews that were at Shushan assembled together on the thirteenth day thereof, and on the fourteenth thereof, and on the fifteenth day of the same, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages that dwelt in the unwalled towns made the fourteenth day of the month Adar a day of gladness and feasting, and a good day, and of sending portions one to another. Thus far we read in the Holy Scriptures. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, Esther chapter 8 ended with the Jews rejoicing with a renewed hope. Their archenemy Haman has been hung, and their man, their representative Mordecai, has taken Haman's place, has been invested with royal power, and now wears the signet ring of King Ahasuerus. And their representative Mordecai immediately put his newfound power into action in favor of his people in the publication of a counter-edict. You remember that the laws of the Medes and the Persians could not be changed. And that meant that Haman's edict, scheduled to exterminate the Jewish people on the 13th day of the 12th month, could not be reversed. And so Mordecai published an edict that would counteract Haman's edict, allowing the Jews to stand for their lives and defend themselves. And that edict brought hope to the Jews throughout the Persian Empire, including God's people wherever they were found throughout the dispersion, as well as God's people back in Jerusalem who were still subject to the Persian crown. The crisis had begun to be resolved. Deliverance had begun, but it was not over yet. Those two irreversible, yet mutually contradictory decrees, those two decrees are scheduled to be executed now on the same day. The great reversal of the fortunes of God's people is not yet done, and the threat to their existence still looms on the horizon. What would happen when these two edicts, Haman's and Mordecai's, collide? What would happen is in the hands, not of King Ahasuerus, not of Mordecai, not of any human power, But the one who is not named, the unseen king, who as we've gone through this book, we have seen guiding and directing this history. And the outcome would be, on account of him, the church delivered and the church preserved. Such that the very day, the very day upon which Satan plotted to destroy the line of Christ and God's people, on that very day, there would be deliverance and rejoicing and victory. 
We come now to the resolution of the entire conflict of the book of Esther as it is reported in Esther chapter 9. Let's consider the first part of this chapter, verses 1 through 19, under the theme, The Church Delivered and Preserved. We'll first look at two edicts collide. Look at the collision of those two edicts and how things play out. Then secondly, one more day, what happened afterwards. And then finally, the aftermath, as it is recorded in the last part of our text. The day was highly anticipated. The 13th day of the 12th month, Adar has dawned. And you can imagine the entire vast Persian Empire as a whole holding its breath as the 13th of Adar dawns. Everyone has had many months to prepare and to wonder what would happen. The first edict written one year ago on the 13th day of the first month by Haman the Agagite, the former prime minister, that edict was scheduled to be enacted today. And that edict called upon the governors and the rulers of the empire to see to it that the Jewish people throughout all of the king's provinces were put to death, them and their families and their goods seized as plunder. But there was a second edict of more recent vintage, one that was written the 23rd day of the third month, about eight months ago, another irreversible edict with the king's seal affixed to it. An edict written by Haman's replacement, the new prime minister, Mordecai the Jew, granting the Jews legal right to resist and to slay and to destroy all those who would come against them. And now Persian citizens from Ethiopia to India are bracing themselves for the collision of these two edicts on this one day. What will happen? What violence will convulse the greatest empire the world had known to date? Will Mordecai's edict prove effective enough to deter any violence? Or would the whole empire be seized by a kind of civil war? The outcome, from every human perspective, is still very uncertain. It's into that setting that the text brings us. And the first half of the text describes how the collision of these two edicts plays out. And describes then the decisive resolution of the conflict that has been building throughout the book of Esther. The crisis that has come to its head. Now it is decisively resolved. And contrary to what humans would have expected, it comes out in the favor of God's people. Verse 1 describes the conflict, or rather the collision of the two edicts as it unfolds. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's commandment and his decree drew near to be put in execution, in the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them. Mordecai's edict had undoubtedly cowed many people, opportunists who wanted to take advantage of Haman's edict in order to plunder some of their neighbors, but 
verse 1 indicates that throughout the Persian Empire, there were many staunch enemies of the Jews, those that hated God's people. And regardless of Mordecai's counter-decree, they were committed to enacting Haman's decree and destroying the Jews and plundering their goods and getting their revenge. There were many throughout Persia who shared the mind and the hatred of Haman the Agagite. And that's clear not only in verse 1, when it describes that on this day, the enemies of the Jews, plural, there were many, the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, but verse 2 also describes those enemies as such as sought their hurt. And verse 5 describes them as those that hated them. In fact, Mordecai's edict, it seems, only stirred up that hatred that was in the hearts of many. And so there would be conflict on the 13th of Adar. These men had waited, they had prepared for this day, and now they band together and they go forth to assault the Jews, to destroy, to kill, to cause, to perish, as Haman's edict said. Likely, Haman's own ten sons were ringleaders, at least, of those in Shushan, the capital city. We can well imagine that they would have had a sizable contingent of supporters committed to seeing Haman's edict through. These ten sons would have been murderously intent on avenging their father and hopefully toppling their father's enemy who had risen to power. And the thirteenth was their chance. Now, verses 2 through 5 give us, in a rather informative way, without getting into too many of the details, give us the battle report of what took place on the 13th of Adar. And verses 2 through 5 describe a decisive and sweeping victory for the Jews in the empire-wide theater of war that day. The Jews were ready. In every city, according to Mordecai's edict, they had gathered themselves together for self-defense and mutual protection. And contrary to what you might expect, we are told no man could withstand them. That is, no man could overcome them, for the fear of them fell upon all people. The assaulting bands of ill-fated Hamanites broke themselves against the Jews like the sea breaking itself upon the shore. And the result was not that they had mastery and power over the Jews as they had hoped, but the result is that the Jews had mastery over them such that verse 5 says that they smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and slaughter and destruction. The Jews scattered them. And then the implication is that the Jews also took the offense against those who had attacked them and pursued them, hunted them down. And thus, Haman's own wording and his own decree was fulfilled against his own followers, sons, and disciples. They were destroyed, killed, and caused to perish. And Haman, who had had designed this decree as his great act of revenge against Mordecai and Mordecai's people, has it turned around on his own head. Haman, of course, was hung eight months ago. But now, his sons, his followers, his disciples share his fate. God's justice, once again, turning the devices of the wicked upon their own heads. 
An interesting fact of the history is how Mordecai's edict gave the Jews the, the edge they needed in the conflict that arose from the collision of these two edicts. And we read of that in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, and then also in verses 3 and 4. Verse 2 states the reason that no man could withstand the Jews, for the fear of them fell upon all people. What that describes is a general fear and terror on account of the Jews and their newfound status because their man Mordecai sat in the highest position of power in the Persian Empire under the king himself. Their hearts melted in them. And that was the Lord's doing. Remember, in covenant history past, for example, the conquest of Canaan, how the Lord fought for his people, and he caused fear to befall the inhabitants of Palestine, the inhabitants of Canaan, so that their hearts melted within them and their hands were slack. God here, again, uses fear. He presses fear upon the Persians. And he uses that to grant his people deliverance. Here's another one of those reversals. Earlier in the book, chapter 4, after Haman's decree was published and the Jews were found mourning, the Jews were found fasting, they were afraid, their doom loomed over them. Now the tables are turned. And all men fear them. But then verses 3 and 4 go on to describe more. Verses 3 and 4 state that the fear of Mordecai in particular fell upon the government officials of the Persian Empire. His fame was spreading. People were hearing about this new prime minister that Ahasuerus had elevated. How great he was in the king's house, that is in the king's, in the king's court. He had the king's favor. He could do whatever he wanted it seemed. He wore the king's signet ring and he waxed greater and greater he was the new man that you didn't want to cross and so Mordecai his position as well as his edict counteracted Haman's command to the government officials of Persia to facilitate the destruction of the Jews remember when we looked at Haman's or rather at Mordecai's edict last time, how there was a subtle projection of Mordecai's newfound power in the way he wrote that edict, putting the Jews first, communicating to the governors, the lieutenants, the deputies, the officers of Persia, that they were the ones who had his favor, and by extension the king's favor. Well, that message was communicated to the officials of the Persian government. They got the message. And they were faced with that question, which edict are we going to enforce? Are we going to enforce the edict of Haman who was hung eight months ago? Or are we going to enforce the edict of the man who is rising ever greater in the king's house and wears the king's signet ring? They were afraid of Mordecai, his power. What would he do to them if they chose Haman's decree? He had the power to strip them from their positions. He had the power even to hang them like Haman had been hung. And so out of fear, the text tells us, the governors helped the Jews. 
The main way that they helped the Jews was likely this, that they deployed the Persian troops under their command to assist the Jews in their self-defense and to bolster their ranks. What an unexpected aid came at that time. They could have hardly expected it. The Jews could have hardly expected it to have the Persian National Guard come to their aid at this hour of need. Because they feared Mordecai. The credit is not to go to Mordecai for this. The credit goes to the unseen king working in the details. The unseen king whose hand of providence elevated Mordecai to this position. And as we've seen, whose hand guided Mordecai in the writing and the publication of that counter-edict. The unseen king, Jehovah God, who caused this fear to descend upon the people. And in particular, this fear to descend upon the officials of the Persian Empire. It was God who made use of the forces of that ungodly empire for the protection of his people. So that the Persian army now serves Zerubbabel and the faithful Jews back in Jerusalem. The Persian army, a tool serving the protection of the line of Christ. Is it not marvelous? And it's God who is behind it. And it is God who deserves the glory for it. Verse 6 wraps up the battle report from the 13th of Adar. Wraps it up with a casualty count of those who were slain in the city of Shushan itself. And among the slain, significantly, verses 10, or rather verses 7 through 10 inform us, among the slain were Haman's ten sons. And Those very interesting and difficult to pronounce names that you read in verses 7 through 10. Those are the names of Haman's ten sons. That they were slain indicates that they were indeed ringleaders of those who sought to destroy the Jews yet and fulfill Haman's decree. But an interesting fact comes out in verse 10 as well. That the Jews did not lay their hand upon the spoil. You remember that Mordecai wrote his edict to mirror Haman's edict so that whatever Haman gave permission to people to do to the Jews, Mordecai gave permission to the Jews to do the very same thing back. And that was to serve as a deterrent to those who would attack them. But the Jews took no plunder. They defended themselves. They even pursued those who attacked them, but they did not lay hands on their attackers' goods. They exercised restraint and did not let their self-defense, at least on this first day, devolve into a bloody counter-massacre and pillaging campaign. And it appears also then that the Jews did not take vengeance On the families of their enemies. You remember Haman's edict had stipulated. That those who attacked the Jews. Were to destroy them utterly. Men, women, children. And take their goods. And Mordecai had written his edict such. That the Jews had legal permission. To destroy not only those who attacked them. But also their families. As well as to take their property. But there's no indication that they did that. 
In fact, in the casualty count given in verse 6, it specified that 500 men were slain. No mention is made of their families. Haman's ten sons were slain, but no mention is made of Zeresh, Haman's wife. And so every appearance is that the Jews restrained themselves from initiating a bloodbath. That is to their credit. Now, what is the significance of the battle that ensued from the collision of these two edicts? What it really is the ultimate significance of the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar? The significance is the theme of the sermon. The church delivered and preserved. That's what happened on the 12th day of the 13th month, or the 13th day of the 12th month. The church was delivered and preserved by the hand of God. Find that in verse 1. It's in parentheses, but really it's the main idea of the entire chapter. Striking the resolution of the crisis of the whole book is what we find in the parentheses in verse 1. The enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, though it was turned to the contrary. It was turned to the contrary. That's what the 13th day of the 12th month was. The greatest threat to the existence of the church that had arisen for a long time, perhaps since the Babylonian captivity, that threat which threatened the very line of Christ and therefore threatened your salvation and mine, that threat was turned to the contrary. Satan, the serpent, had done his best. He had launched one of his most vicious attacks to stop the salvation of the church. And it was turned to the contrary. And here we go back to what we've taken note of so many times as we've gone through the book of Esther. Where God's name is conspicuously absent There, his presence is being emphasized. Though it was not acknowledged in Shushan, though it was not acknowledged in so many other places, the one who turned this all to the contrary was God. In fact, God is found in the passive verb. It was turned to the contrary. It doesn't say Esther turned it to the contrary. It doesn't say Ahasuerus turned it to the contrary, or Mordecai turned it to the contrary, or the Jews, because of their military prowess, bolstered by the Persian army, turned it to the contrary. It was turned to the contrary by the unnamed, unseen God who reigns and who rules and who turns all things according to his sovereign good pleasure, at the center of which is Jesus Christ and the salvation of his people, the church was delivered and preserved. 
And all the praise goes to God. Not human might, power, or any human edict. But Jehovah gave his people the victory. He fought for them that day. God fought for them. Yes, the text talks about the Jews slaying their enemies with the sword stroke. But as we read that, we remember what we sang in the versification of Psalm 44, where the psalmist reflects upon the conquest of Canaan. They gained not the land by the edge of the sword. They were saved from their enemies in Persia, not by the edge of the sword. Their own arm to them could no safety afford. The Jews' own arm and the Persian soldiers that bolstered their ranks could no safety afford. But thy right hand saved, and the light of thy face because of thy favor and wonderful grace. That's the reason for the outcome of the collision of these two edicts. On the 13th day, the 12th month, Adar. And that's the truth that applies to all of the church's battles. Not just the exodus, when the Old Testament church was delivered from Egypt, not by their own power, but by the power of God who caused the Red Sea to part and then caused the sea to fall upon the pursuing host of Pharaoh. This is the truth that not only applies to the Israelites conquering the land of Canaan, taking the city of Jericho and the rest of the land. This is the truth that not only applies to the church in the time of Esther. This is the truth that applies to the church's battles in our day as well. As we face the same spiritual enemies that God's people have faced throughout the ages. That roaring lion, that old dragon, the devil. And all of his power which is so great. And all of his host. And the wicked world that he marshals behind him. And our own sinful flesh. Jehovah, the unseen king, fights for his people. He delivers and he preserves most marvelously, most wonderfully. Yes, sometimes with an amazing act of power like the Red Sea. Other times, like we've seen throughout the book of Esther, his quiet work hidden in the night, unseen, unacknowledged, but just as mighty, just as wonderful, just as effectual. As the Red Sea. In the book of Esther. We've seen what you can call. A great tribulation. For the Old Testament church. Their very existence was threatened. By an edict that seemed unstoppable. And God turned it to the contrary. As we live in the last days. And more and more we face the opposition of the powers of darkness that seems insurmountable, unstoppable, irreversible. 
irresistible. This God who was our help in ages past shall be our help today and in the ages to come. And he will turn it to the contrary. Even when the church enters into the great tribulation. When Antichrist sits upon the throne of this world and unites all men to him. And devotes the resources of the human race to the destruction and the annihilation of the church in that great tribulation. Jehovah the unseen king will turn it to the contrary. He will preserve his church in the midst of it. And he will deliver his church through it. And at the appointed time, deliverance will come. And Antichrist will collide with the returning Christ and be consumed and cast down. The whole pattern of history, the way of God's working that we've seen in the book of Esther. That's how God works today. That's how God will work tomorrow. And in every one of our days to come. Fear not, people of God. Be not dismayed. Be of good courage. For this God is your God. And this God fights for you. And this God will never leave or forsake you. And this God with his mighty arm hath gotten you the victory. And this God will bring you and his whole church into the fullness of that victory. Fear not. Look. Upon the battle of the 13th of Adar. And see the outcome. The sure outcome of the church's every battle. One more day. One more day. Verses 1 through 6 have reported to us the events, the battle, on the 13th of Adar. We would expect everything to be over now, as evening falls on that chaotic day. But there would be one more day of it, in Shushan, the palace city. As we go on in the text now, the text takes us from the battlefield of the Persian Empire back to the king's palace, where Ahasuerus, in keeping with his character, had kept himself safely sequestered away, happily oblivious to the bloodshed all around him, bloodshed that he was responsible for, but bloodshed about which he had very little care. The text takes us back to Ahasuerus that evening as he listens to the battle report himself and with what appears to be interest, listens to the death tally of the day. We come to verse 11 of the text. On that day, the number of those that were slain in Shushan the palace was brought before the king. And then in verse 12, the king responds to what he hears. Verse 12, And the king said unto Esther the queen, 
The Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the palace and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? 500 men in Shushan alone in the capital. That's quite a number. It was a day of considerable unrest. Imagine living in Shushan that day. If you were a mother or father, it would have been a day that you kept your children at home, inside, and in the basement all day. 500 men, and yet the king comments what it must have been like in the rest of my empire and all of the rest of the provinces. And it's hard exactly to catch what Ahasuerus' emotion here is, but the general impression that we get from the text is that Ahasuerus is quite impressed. He's a man who cares nothing about human life, no matter whose life it is. He didn't even need to know who the people were when he signed off on Haman's decree for their extermination. And now he's fascinated by the gory details of how many people have been slain in his city and imagining just how many have perished in one day throughout his empire. We again see the depraved character of this man. Though it would take some time for the full casualty count to come in, verse 16 tells us that throughout the entirety of the Persian Empire, 75,000 men were were slain just on the 13th of Adar. And that again reinforces just how many enemies the Jews had in the Persian Empire. And that should not surprise us. Satan was behind this. The seed of the serpent was seeking the destruction of the seed of the woman and and the stopping of the coming of Christ. And Satan put all his energy into this. He stirred up the hearts of wicked men against God's church by means of Haman's edict. And the casualty count shows just how mighty an effort Satan had put into this attack. And shows us all the more the glory of God in preserving and delivering his church. The Jews were some of the lowliest and most oppressed among the people of the land. A people dispersed through the Persian Empire because they were former captives. They stood up against this might such that 75,000 were slain. Again, not by the edge of their sword, but by the sword of Jehovah, who arises to his people's aid. But now the king, at the end of verse 12, does something unexpected. Apparently he's still spending time with Esther. She's regained his favor. She's his favorite. And he turns to Esther now, and he asks if she has any further requests. Now what is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. Or what is thy request further, and it shall be done. And that's surprising, because now Ahasuerus has fulfilled all that that Esther has asked for. Remember, he was a little bit exasperated before when she asked for more. He had hung Haman on the gallows. He had given Haman's whole estate into the hands of Esther. And Esther said, the job's not done. My people need saving. And Ahasuerus wanted to wash his hands of this business. What more can I do? And so he gives... He gives Mordecai his ring and says, you take care of it. Now, now, seemingly out of the blue, he asks, what more can I do? What is your request further? Equally surprising 
is Esther's swift reply in verse 13. Then said Esther, if it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan to do tomorrow also according unto this day's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged upon the gallows. There's been no indication in the history so far that Esther had this in mind. Or intended to ask this. This too comes out of the blue. And she asks for two things. In the first place, she asks for an extension of Mordecai's edict. So that it would be in force tomorrow on the 14th of Adar as well. But the location where that edict would continue to be enforced would be limited just to Shushan, the palace, and the city surrounding it. It would not be extended in the rest of the Persian Empire. She's saying, let the Jews do what they did today, tomorrow as well, but just in the capital city. And then she asks for Haman's sons, his ten sons, to be hanged upon the gallows, and the implication is upon the same gallows that Haman was hung upon. Apparently, that 75-foot pole was still standing in Haman's former yard, now in the possession of Mordecai. Haman's ten sons had been killed in the battle. And so, Esther is asking for their bodies to be hung upon that pole for all of Shushan to see. And we can, we can understand that second part of her request a little more. His sons share his condemnation. And that's what this act would symbolize. Not only Haman, but his sons and his entire line share his condemnation. In fact, his entire family line is here obliterated. So that the the house of Agag is decisively defeated and cannot arise again to assault God's people. With the hanging of Haman's ten sons on that gallows, There would be a very visible picture and symbol to all of Shushan. The house of Jacob has triumphed over the house of Agag. But the first part is very strange. The first part of Esther's request. One more day to slay. What explains this? What explains Esther's request for one more day? This is really the hardest part of the text to explain because nowhere in the book do we find any indication of what Esther's motives or reasons might be. So we can only speculate, we can only surmise, and therefore we can't come necessarily to a definite conclusion. Many suggestions have been given by various commentators. One explanation is that Esther and Mordecai, having gotten a taste of the blood of their enemies, have a lust for revenge and want more. That may be. Another explanation is that this was simply a political maneuver. Esther and Mordecai wanted to further secure their position of power in Shushan. And given the fact that Haman and his family had lived in Shushan... The strongest cluster or cell of their enemies was undoubtedly found in Shushan, and so they needed more time to root out Haman's supporters and deal with them. That may very well be the case. Another suggestion that commentators have made is that Esther was intent on finishing 
what Mordecai's ancestor Saul failed to do. And there we go back to that history. You remember in 1 Samuel how God commanded Saul to be the instrument of his divine judgment upon the Amalekites and to exterminate the Amalekites under their king Agag. And we all know how Saul failed to carry out God's order, keeping King Agag alive and taking the best of the animals as plunder. And so some suggest that the Jews not laying their hands on the spoil, and Esther asking for this extra day to get the job done, that there is an intention to fulfill that ancient command and finish the job that Saul failed to complete. And while there may be some things that are attractive about that explanation, it's not without its problems. For one thing, there's no indication that the 75,000 men slain throughout the Persian Empire were all Amalekites. And it wasn't just that Saul was not to take the plunder. He was to destroy it. And that the Jews did not do. And so that explanation isn't fully satisfactory. In fact, none of those three explanations, which are the three main explanations, are fully satisfactory. As we've seen in Esther before, sometimes we just have to be satisfied with some questions not being fully answered because God is pleased not to give us some of these details. That said, we can say this. The explanation for one more day is that God the unseen king ordained that there be one more day to accomplish his purposes. When we run into these places in the book of Esther where things are surprising, things are unusual, and a human explanation is not readily apparent, There the unseen king should come before us once again. God is at work here. God, who is here working a complete deliverance of his people. God ordained and God chose that there be one more day in which he would pour out his judgment upon the enemies of his people in Shushan. And God would have that one extra day, according to his good pleasure, to do that work. God does whatever he pleases to deliver his people. Even the unexpected. Think of another battle. The battle against the Amorites. When God caused the longest day there was by causing the sun to stand still in the sky till Israel had the victory. Complete deliverance. God worked in a marvelous and unusual way. So it is here. God worked in the heart of King Ahasuerus to do something contrary to his character and contrary to the way he's behaved up to this point. And he offers more to Esther. What more can I do for you? What is your request further? And Esther comes out with this additional request that we don't expect. There's been no indication of it in the history up to this point. God is at work. Accomplishing his purposes through these human instruments and God can use a human instrument in harmony with their actions and their character and their wills or God can work sovereignly contrary to what you would expect from those human characters 
He is sovereign. He is the potter. Man is the clay. And we see that here. God chose for there to be one more day for him to accomplish deliverance for his people. And so verse 14, the king, on account of God's moving of his heart, agrees to Esther's additional request. The king commanded it so to be done, and the decree was given at Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And then what follows is a description of the carrying out of that decree. The next day, on the 14th of Adar, the Jews pursued their enemies. And now remember, the enemies of the Jews weren't allowed to initiate any violence. Haman's edict specified only the 13th of Adar. That edict has, ex- has expired. But now the king has issued an extension of Mordecai's edict in Shushan for the 14th. And now the Jews aren't on defense, but they hunt down their enemies in Shushan the palace. And we're told that 300 more men were slain and Shushan was purged of the enemies of God's people. One last point of significance as we wrap up the second point. Go back to that 75-foot pole in Haman's former estate now belonging to Mordecai. Another ugly sight as Haman's ten sons, their bodies are hung upon that pole. There's a theological message there. We've seen how God grants complete victory to his people. And in the hanging of Haman's ten sons, we see the negative side of that complete victory, the complete defeat of the church's enemies, and in particular, the complete and utter defeat of the serpent and his seed. Remember, Haman, the Agagite, represents the seed of the serpent, the enemies of God's people. He not only had an ethnic hatred for the Jews, but he had a spiritual enmity against Christ and his people. And his ten sons, ten, completeness, represent the entire line of the seed of the serpent. Haman and his posterity, the entire line of the seed of the serpent, hung upon that pole, accursed, accursed. What God said to Satan in the garden, that he would be cursed and that his head would be crushed. Here it's pictured, defeated. And all his posterity, all of his seed, his whole line, all of his power, defeated and accursed. The hanging of Haman's ten sons is in fact a powerful picture of the final crushing of the serpent's head. And the destruction of the serpent's ability to ever harm God's people again. And that's encouraging to us too. In these dark last days. When we see the powers of Antichrist growing and we see all of the enemies that the church faces. This is who they are. And this is the end of all of the enemies of the church. Accursed. Defeated. By the unseen king. At last we come to the aftermath. The aftermath we read about in verses 17 through 19. 
And it can be summarized with one word. Rest. The Jews, God's people, had rest. True rest. Rest not just in the sense of relaxation, but relief from oppressing evil. That was what their rest was. Let's compare a couple verses a moment. You remember the end of chapter 8 after Mordecai's counter-edict was published. And wherever that edict went, there was rejoicing among the Jews. Chapter 8, verse 17. And in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. And many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. There was rejoicing. They did not yet have their full deliverance, but they had renewed hope. But notice it says nothing about rest. 13th of Adar was still coming. But now you turn to the last verse of our text, Esther 9 verse 19. Therefore the Jews of the villages that dwelt in the unwalled towns made the fourteenth day of the month Adar a day of gladness and feasting and a good day and of sending portions to one another. You see the parallel language. But then you jump up to verse 18. But the Jews that were at Shushan assembled together on the thirteenth day thereof and on the fourteenth day thereof And on the fifteenth day of the same, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Rest. Because deliverance promised, deliverance anticipated, deliverance hoped for has now become a full reality. They had rest from that terrible evil that threatened them. The oppressive evil of Haman and his edict and all of their gathering enemies coming to destroy them. Their hope, their certain hope was now fulfilled. There was peace, there was refreshment, there was quiet, there was rest in that finished deliverance. That's the effect of God's work on behalf of his church. That's the effect and the fruit of all of his works of deliverance throughout history, and his works of deliverance and preservation for us now in the battles we engage in as church militant. Even though we are in the midst of the battle, we have rest. We do. We have rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, who has gotten us the victory on the cross of Calvary, where he decisively defeated our enemies. We have that rest. That looming evil of eternal ruin has been averted from us. The curse that would have fallen upon us, Christ has taken and borne away. The punishment of our sins, hell itself, taken. We are delivered from it. And though we are yet in the battle, our God is with us. He fights for us. He preserves us in that battle so that our enemies cannot withstand us either. 
Sin, even our own indwelling sin, cannot withstand the powerful grace of God that works ceaselessly in our lives, refashioning us more and more after the image of Christ. A guilty conscience cannot stand or withstand the power of God's justifying verdict declared to us in the gospel. The power of the devil is nothing in comparison to the power of our good shepherd who is with us. By his rod and staff comforts and protects us. The aftermath of every one of the church's battles is rest. We have that rest now. We taste that rest. And that rest stirs up our hope for the fullness of the rest that is to come. When at last, when at last, Christ returns. and We are given rest from all evil. Think upon that for but a moment. What that will be like. Oh, the joy. Oh, the feasting. Oh, the gladness and the light of that day when evil will finally be banished. Every form of it delivered finally, completely, forever through Christ Jesus our Lord. That full deliverance is won for us already by Christ on the cross. All that remains is for God to realize it according to his counsel and execute it in time. That he is doing. So as we see the darkening skies and clouds of the last days, and we see the spirit of Antichrist moving, and we see his growing power, again, fear not and be not dismayed. Be of good courage. Because our redemption draws nigh as well. As we see the powers of darkness marshal. They marshal and band together just like the enemies of the Jews in our text. So that they may dash themselves upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. The defender, the preserver, and the deliverer of his people. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, encourage us by this history. Encourage us in the good fight of faith, in the battle of the Christian life, for it is often hard, it is often weary, it is often frightening. May we trust in Thee, our Deliverer and our Preserver. And may we see in Thy marvelous work in Esther chapter 9, may we see a glimpse of how Thou dost work today and in our own lives in the battles in which we are engaged. Comfort us and strengthen us by this word. For Jesus' sake, amen.